It's a huge privilege for me to join you again after four years. <laughs> when I was an undergraduate at McGill, McGill University of Montreal many moons ago, um, for three of my four years there, I lived in one of three men's residences near the top of Mount Royal. There was McConnell Hall and Gardner Hall, and in between the two was Molson Hall, where I was. And these were three residences, each that had uh, 220 men. In those days, mixed residences were not in vogue. That's how long ago it was. And, um, and because they were identical in shape and number, just uh, at a different place in the mountainside, uh, there was a lot of competition among the three. So for things like blood drives, which residents had the highest percentage of uh, participants or some sort of social action, something or other, which one had the greatest enthusiasm and support and so on. Believe it or not, we actually had a, an implicit competition every year for which residents would decorate itself best at Christmas time. Now, there was no Christmas commitment at all. This was not a Christian organization, but in terms of lights and banners and that, that sort of thing. And it has to be said that during the years that I was there, Molson, which was my hall, um, it, it won most of those things hands down. There was just a, a tremendous amount of esprit. But this particular Christmas, um, somehow or other we fell behind the eight ball. We, we, we didn't, didn't get anything going. Lights were up and flashing and trees were around and so on the other two halls. And there was Molson, just boring old regular Molson with, without any sign at all. And we thought we had really blown it that year. <coughs> Down the mountainside from McGill, about halfway down the mountain, there is the Montreal Neurological Institute. And every Christmas, it brought in a tree from the Laurentian Mountains, a Christmas tree that was four stories high uh, of its stories. And they were big stories, about six or seven ordinary stories high. And they put it outside and decorated it outside the front of the Montreal Neurological Institute. So some of our more enterprising um, members, uh, trotted down the hill in the middle of the night and picked up this six or seven story tree and brought it back up the mountainside. Now, our residences had two wings. Each residence had two wings. And in the middle was a giant staircase that sort of circled in a spiral all the way up. And behind that were the elevators. Somehow we managed to get the bottom of this thing into the rec room off on the side, then bend it enough to get it up between the stair slots. Now, this is because all the branches were tied up. You see, that's how they truck them in. They tie up all these branches and truck the whole thing in, did you see? So it, it was narrow and skinny, and we got it up and then cut the ropes. <laughs> so now... There was no way you could go up and down the stairs. And when I got up the next morning, I was on the seventh floor. Uh, when I got to the top of the stairs, there was a tree sticking up the middle. And you looked down, and there was nothing but greenery. And then across the front of the entire hall, we had made a huge banner from wing to wing with the words on it, Molson is better. Now, to make matters even more interesting, Molson, of course, as you know, is a brewery company, and the, the slogan at the time was, Molson is better. So we, we were winning on, on every front. 
And um, two days later, Gardner Hall then put up a, a, a banner across their front saying, Gardner is best. But the general consensus around the university, I don't think this is a mere Molson perception, was that at the level of mere grammar, the superlative wins above the comparative. Best is stronger than better. At the level of rhetoric, we won hands down. Because there is a context in which if you say X is better than Y, it's, it's stronger than if you say X is best. X is best is a general superlative. But if you say X is better than Y, and better than A, and better than B, and better than Z, don't you see? X is better. There's a certain kind of rhetorical power to that that you cannot get by the mere grammatical superlative. So Molson won. But in large measure, apart from the beer... That's the argument of Hebrews. The argument of Hebrews is Jesus is better. In chapter 1, he's better than the angels. It's not long before you discover he's better than Moses in chapter 3. Chapter 7 and elsewhere, he's better than um, Aaron. His covenant is better than the old covenant. His priesthood is better than the old priesthood. You, you just work through comparison after comparison. His sacrifice is better. His, his, his death is better. Um, his Yom Kippur sacrifice is, is, is better. Um, Jesus is better. So in part, this is a book that is talking about the superlative qualities of Jesus by making endless comparisons with him, mostly drawn from the Old Covenant scriptures, and on every axis, Jesus is better. Now, that means that in terms of the overall thrust of the book, there are two things to watch for all the time. This is a book supremely devoted to comparing Jesus and the new covenant and that all that he brings with antecedent revelation, with the old covenant and its sacrificial system, its priesthood, its structure, and saying that on front after front after front, Jesus is better, with the result that if you grasp the nature of the argument in Hebrews, you're learning how to put your whole Bible together. This book is extraordinarily important for giving you a holistic Bible. Now, if you're not a Christian and you don't really care whether the Bible hangs together or not, that's not going to be the most immediate turn-on. Yet, at the same time, for serious Christians who want to read the Bible faithfully, intelligently, to see how it works, how it works as a book, then it really is important to put your Bible together because that will then shape how you read your Bible devotionally how you teach from it in, in Bible studies and the like. It will, it will position you to, to understand what you're reading a lot more so than if you read the book only in atomistic little bits. But in the second place, if you grasp the argument of this book aright, then it also becomes important to understand why these individual categories where Jesus is better than something else are important. So in this first chapter, as we'll see in a few moments, Jesus is better than the angels. And you might say to yourself, well, whoop-de-doo, so what? I mean, 
Does anybody in this room doubt that Jesus is better than the angels? I mean, why should that be such a turn-on? Why, why, why is that encouraging? What, what has that got to do with my Christian life? I mean, creedily, no doubt at the end of the talk, I can say, yes, I understand Jesus is better than the angels, but so what? So part of our responsibility then, as we work through the comparisons, is, is to think through what difference that makes. What difference that makes not only for understanding Jesus, but what difference it ought to make in our own lives. Why it should bend us toward worship, toward adoration, toward grasping why these things are important, not only to our understanding, but to our walk of faith, to our, to our obedient um, response to the gospel of Christ. So the book begins then with this prologue, chapter 1, verses 1 to 4. We'll look at that first, and then we'll scan the rest of the chapter, though we won't have time to go through it in detail. Let me begin, however, by reading the first chapter. In the past, God spoke to our ancestors through the prophets at many times and in various ways. But in these last days, he has spoken to us by his Son, whom he appointed heir of all things, and through whom also he made the universe. The Son is the radiance of God's glory and the exact representation of his being, sustaining all things by his powerful word. After he had provided purification for sins, he sat down at the right hand of the majesty in heaven. So he became as much superior to the angels as the name he has inherited is superior to theirs. For to which of the angels did God ever say, You are my son. Today I have become your father. Or again, I will be his father, and he will be my son. And again, when God brings his firstborn into the world, he says, Let all God's angels worship him. In speaking of the angels, he says, He makes his angels spirits and his servants flames of fire. But about the Son, he says, Your throne, O God, will last forever and ever. A scepter of justice will be the scepter of your kingdom. You have loved righteousness and hated wickedness. Therefore, God, your God, has set you above your companions by anointing you with the oil of joy. He also says, In the beginning, O Lord, you laid the foundations of the earth, and the heavens are the work of your hands. They will perish, but you remain. They will all wear out like a garment. You will roll them up like a robe. Like a garment, they will be changed. But you remain the same, and your years will never end. To which of the angels did God ever say, Sit at my right hand until I make your enemies a footstool for your feet. Are not all angels ministering spirits sent to serve those who will inherit salvation? This is the word of the Lord. So, begin with the introduction. Transparently, there is a comparison drawn between God's revelation in earlier times, in antecedent times, through the prophets, at various times in various ways, and his revelation now in Christ Jesus. In the past, 
God spoke to our ancestors through the prophets at many times and in various ways. But in these last days, he has spoken to us by his son. Now, it's easy to remember some of the different ways in which God spoke to the fathers, the ancestors, in Old Testament times. It wasn't all of a piece. It's worth reminding ourselves of some of the differences. On occasion, God spoke somehow to the mind of Jeremiah, and then Jeremiah dictated what God gave him so that his personal secretary, Baruch, could write the material down. That's why halfway through the book, when the bad guys come along and take the scroll that Jeremiah has dictated and then tear off pages and throw them into the fire. You're not supposed to be saying, this is terrible. What will we possibly do? It's destroyed. You're supposed to be laughing because these people actually think they can destroy the message because they tear up pages in the book. Do you know, there's a backup. The backup is the mind of God. Do you really think that God has forgotten what he's said? And so what happens is he gives it to Jeremiah again, Jeremiah dictates it again, and Baruch has to write it down again. The only person who comes out short in that deal is Baruch, who's got to write it all down again. Did you see? But you're supposed to laugh. These people think they can destroy the word of God by tearing up a manuscript and putting it in a fire? The best backup that ever existed, the mind of God. So you get some scriptures that are given really by dictation. But then there are others that are clearly not by dictation. You cannot imagine that David comes in after a long day in um, the palace doing his governing thing. And then as he's stretching out to have a snooze, the mind of God comes to him somehow and says, David, not yet. Get out your quill pen. I have some dictation for you. And so he says, oh, all right, I'll, I'll sharpen up my quill. He gets it ready and all right, I'm ready. The Lord, the Lord is my, is my shepherd, shepherd. I shall not, I shall not want, want. Clearly, Psalm 23 is written out of the matrix of personal experience. Now, it's written still so superintended by God that what is the result is the word of God, but it's another way, another mode by which God has disclosed himself in space and time and history. And other times through spectacular visions like those given to Daniel, some of which Daniel himself did not understand. And actually, after he had written them down, asked God to explain what they meant. And God simply said, frankly, Daniel, it's none of your business. It's for a later generation. So in this case, it's the transcription of a vision where the human author did not even understand what was going on. In other words, there are many different ways in which God has spoken in the past in diverse ways, different times across um, a millennium and a half of writing time and so on. But in these last days, God has spoken to us, the text says, by his son. Now, a quick superficial reading of these verses, you might think, all right, all right, in the past God used the prophets, now God uses his son. And, And there's something to that. Yet the author makes it clear in two ways that this son revelation is distinctively superior. One is found in the original in a way that is hard to translate. The text does not say God has spoken to us 
in the sun or by the sun or something like that. Literally, although you can't possibly render it this way, it's literally in sun. When you leave out the article in Greek, then you are drawing attention away from the specific person and you are putting emphasis on the quality of what's going on. In other words, if I were rendering this paraphrastically to get the point across, I might say, in the past God spoke to the ancestors through the prophets and so on. But in these last days, he has spoken unto us in the sun revelation. So it's not just, therefore, that the sun is the mouthpiece, the way a prophet was the mouthpiece, however the prophecy was mediated. But it's actually in the sun revelation. That's the quality of the revelation. It's the sun revelation. And that's why many people have drawn attention to the sort of conceptual parallel between this and the opening verses of John's gospel. In the beginning was the word, that is, God's self-expression. And this self-expression was with God, that is, God's own fellow. And this self-expression was God, God's own self. And then a little later on, this self-expression, this word, became flesh. Now the locus of the revelation, you see, is in one who is called the self-expression of God, the Word. In other words, the Word is not just words. The Word is not just Scripture. The Word is not merely inscripturated dictation or anything like that. The Word now is coming to us in God's ultimate, supreme self-expression, namely in the one we know as Jesus of Nazareth. Because this Word, this self-expression of God, became flesh and lived for a while among us. So also here, different categories, different vocabulary. But nevertheless, in the past, God spoke to us through these various prophets in a variety of ways. But now he has spoken to us in the Son revelation. But if we haven't caught the superiority of this, the Son is further described. None of these things could be said of the prophets. The Son revelation. This son whom he appointed heir of all things, that is, he is co-ruler with God over everything, through whom also he made the universe, that is, he is co-creator with God of everything. That too is a theme that you find in John 1. Through him all things were made, without him was not anything made that was made. So the same theme is picked up here. It's th- the same theme is picked up in, in, in Colossians chapter 1. All things were made, we're told, by him and for him. Colossians 1.15 and following. Now, none of these things could be said of the prophets. Even a great prophet like Isaiah, it could not be said of him that through him all things were made or that God appointed Isaiah heir of all things. The sun is the radiance of God's glory. That's spectacular. You, you, you think of the manifestation of God's glory in radiance. But the sun is now connected with the glory as, with God as the radiance is connected with glory. I, I don't even know how you can make quite a distinction. How can you speak of the radiance of the glory? It's a bit like talking of the shining of the light. Do, 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 do you see? And the sun is so much the reflection of God that he is like the radiance of glory. And the exact representation of his being, the word that is used there, is often used of the stamp in the ancient world of, of, a, of a Roman coin. Uh, it's the exact representation, stamp after stamp after stamp after stamp. It just reflects the original perfectly. 
Do you want to know what God looks like? Look at the sun. There is the radiance of his glory. There is the stamp of his likeness. And then moving away from these sorts of metaphors, he sustains all things by his powerful word. Now, the closest parallel to that thought, I think, is probably 1 Corinthians 15. There we're told that in the wake of Jesus' death and burial and resurrection, he reigns as God's mediatorial king. That is, as the king who mediates all of God's sovereignty. God does all that he does right now through the resurrected Christ. Christ claims as much when he says at the end of Matthew's gospel, all authority is given to me in heaven and on earth. That, that, that's, that's astonishing. All authority, all of God's sovereignty is mediated through Christ. He's the mediatorial king. Paul says he must reign until he has put the last enemy under his feet. In other words, his reign is now still contested, but he will so reign as God's mediating king until the final enemy is destroyed and the last enemy to be destroyed is death itself. Death itself will die and God becomes all in all. So also here, by him, God sustains all things. So if the universe does not fly apart, if your heart keeps ticking, if you keep breathing, your hair keeps growing, you can sleep and get up, and the seasons keep changing, it's all sustained by God's powerful word mediated through King Jesus. Now of whom could you say that? amongst the Old Testament prophets. However significant Moses was, however significant Ezekiel was, however significant Jeremiah was, however significant an Enoch who walked with God was, you could not predicate of him that he sustained all things by his powerful word. But that's the claim that is made of the Son, whose revelation now is the climax of all things. He sustains all things by his powerful word. Now, all of this is in the realm of his authority, of his reign, of his oneness with God. But now you are introduced also to one of the major themes of the entire book, halfway through verse 3, namely the redemption that he accomplishes. After he had provided purification for sins, that is, by his death on the cross. That will be unpacked later in the book. By his death and resurrection on our behalf. Bearing our sins. Canceling our sin. Turning aside the wrath of God. After he provided purification for our for sins. So that the sins which were so staining and dirty are, 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 are so removed that there's cleanness. There's purification. He sat down at the right hand of the majesty in heaven. God's own right hand, that is to exercise all of God's authority, as in the previous verses. And then verse 4. This, this verse is tricky, but it is key to so much. So he became as much superior to the angels as the name he has inherited is superior to theirs. Now, it's the nature of the comparison that's so English, that, that's, so, that's so interesting. The, the text says that he became something that he wasn't. But the nature of the comparison is what he was. He became as much superior to the angels as the name that he has is superior to theirs. To say that his name is superior to theirs is to talk about what is of his very essence. The, the name in the ancient world reflects the person. 
His name is superior to theirs means that he's superior to them. So he is himself superior to them in his very being. He's the son of whom all of these things are true that have just been articulated. He's the the one with God who has made all things. He is the one with God who sustains all things. He is the one who reflects God perfectly. His radiance manifests the glory of God. that's, That's true in his very being. And that makes him superior to angels themselves. The significance of that will come to in due course. But also, we're told, he became superior to angels by virtue of his purification. That is, by virtue of his death and resurrection. When Jesus entered into the world, he had not accomplished the cross. He had not accomplished the resurrection. In his name, he was already intrinsically superior to angels. In his very being, in his status as, as, as the word made flesh, as, as the one who reveals God, he was already superior to angels. But now he becomes superior to them by virtue of what he accomplishes in his death and in his resurrection. Which presupposes that there's some kind of dip, some sort of sense in which for a while he was not superior to angels. He takes on human likeness. He's humbled. He's crushed. He dies. No angel dies. But he makes himself a nobody. This, in other words, is language that reminds you of passages like Philippians 2. He empties himself and makes himself a nobody and is finally destroyed on the cross, is a nothing. He's wiped out. Wherefore, God has highly exalted him and given him the name that is above every name. Oh, in one hand, since he already has the name, but now he's given the name as a result of his death and resurrection, the name that is above every name, that is the name of Jesus, every knee should bow. What's presupposed is a kind of dip. Then he comes back to the other side, and because of the purification that he achieved, he is superior to the angels in every way in which by name, by his very being, he was superior to them in the first place. Do, do, do you see? It's a remarkable comparison. It's a way of saying, in eternity past, he was superior to the angels. And yes, he became one with us. And yes, he died our death. And yes, he was damned. Yes, he, yes, he, he bore the curse. Yes, he died. He was thus inferior to angels. But he rose again on the other side. And all authority is his. And, 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 and all of God's sovereignty is mediated through him. He upholds all things by his powerful word. He becomes as much superior to the angels as he was in his very name, and his very being. Do you see? But it is verse 4, likewise, by making this transition, that introduces you to angels. Angels are not mentioned in verses 1, 2, and 3. Merely the superiority of the Son. The superiority of the Son's revelation over against all the prophets. But now the superiority of the Son over against angels. And that then becomes the transition into the rest of the chapter, which is merely a catena of Old Testament quotations. It's a list of Old Testament quotations, all designed to prove that Jesus is better than the angels. Now, how does that argument work? I don't have time to go through all of these quotations. They're, they're too long. They're, they're too involved. I'm going to pick up a couple of them. Three. A couple, which is three. <laughs> and, and then tease out what this means for understanding the rest of the chapter. And, um, and then we'll try to, to back off just a wee bit and consider what this says to us today, why it's important. Pick up verse 5, which has the first two quotations. For to which of the angels did God ever say, You are my son? 
Today I have become your father. Or again, I will be his father and he will be my son. The first of those two quotations is from Psalm 2. Psalm 2, 7. The second quotation, I will be his father and he will be my son, is from 2 Samuel 7. Now, the interesting thing about you are my son, today I have become your father, Psalm 2, 7, is that it is quoted three times in the New Testament. And each time, it is said to prove something different. Okay? In this text, just following the flow of the argument so fast, so far, it means something like this. God addressed Jesus and said, You are my son, today I have become your father. That makes you superior to the angels. God never said anything like that to the angels. So Psalm 2-7 is used to prove Jesus' authority over the angels, his superiority over the angels. Agreed? It's also quoted in Hebrews 5.5. We read, in the same way, that is, in the same way as in the Old Testament priestly system, the high priest didn't take the honor on himself, but was appointed by God. So in the same way, 5.5, 5, Christ did not take on himself the glory of becoming a high priest, but God said to him, now the quotation, you are my son, today I have become your father. So here, the same quotation from Psalm 2 is taken to prove that Jesus does not take on the high priesthood by himself. Correct? That's the nature of the, the argument. The third place where this verse is quoted is in Acts 13, in Paul's great sermon to the believers in Pisidian Antioch, believers and unbelievers alike in, in, in Pisidian Antioch. Here it's talking about Jesus' resurrection. Pick up in Acts 13, 32 and following. We tell you the good news, the gospel. What God promised our ancestors, he has fulfilled to us, their children, by raising up Jesus. And the context shows it means raising him from the dead. As it is written in the second psalm, you are my son, today I have become your father. God raised him from the dead so that he will never be subject to decay, and then another quotation. So now, Psalm 2-7 is being used to prove that God would raise Jesus from the dead. All right? So the one verse, Psalm 2-7, is used to prove, let me review, number one, that Jesus is superior to angels, number two, that he does not volunteer for his priesthood, but is actually appointed by God, and number three, that he would be raised from the dead. Agreed? The trouble is when you look at Psalm 2, it's not talking about angels, priesthood, or rising from the dead. Which makes the most cynical among us say, do you see, do you see, the New Testament writers are ripping texts out of their context. They're not paying attention. They're not respecting the word of God. So therefore, why should we have to do this detailed, detailed, careful exegesis? I mean, the New Testament writers themselves are very creative in their, in their handling of the Old Testament text, and that authorizes us to be very creative in our handling of Old Testament texts too. Whole books have been written to justify that notion. When I was a student at Cambridge many moons ago, my mentor, my doctorfather, was a chap called Barnabas Linders, and the first book he wrote was called New Testament Apologetic. The thesis of that book was the apologetic of the New Testament writers. That is, the defense of the gospel used by the New Testament writers basically was nothing but a pastiche of proof texts that ripped things out of their context. 
And this seems like a prime example, doesn't it? So what we're going to do is take a look at those two quotations in Psalm in Hebrews 1 5, Psalm 2 and 2 Samuel 7, and try to make sense of them, and then see how it fits into the argument, and then we'll apply it to us. That's where we're going. Now, there are two quotations, I said. The earlier one is 2 Samuel 7. So turn to that passage first. 2 Samuel 7. Let me remind you of the context. After years of running, hiding from Saul, Saul has been killed, and David, for his part, has now become king. For seven years, he reigns over just the southern two tribes in the little town of Hebron. But at this point, he has become king over the entire 12 tribes, And he has taken Jerusalem as his capital city. In the previous chapter, chapter 6, 2 Samuel 6, the tabernacle has been moved there. And so now, for the first time in history, one city has become the center of the monarchy on the one hand and the temple, what will be the temple at that point, there's still the tabernacle and its, its rites of worship and sacrificial system and so on. And now that everything is in place and there's some sort of stability... David says, now is the time to upgrade the tabernacle to temple, some sort of long-term, stable building instead of a temporary tabernacle that is made up of skins of various animals. So he presents this as a plan, and Nathan the prophet thinks this is a wonderful idea. After all, centuries earlier, Deuteronomy had spoken of a place and time when God would plant his name in one city. This looked like God's answer to God's own declaration. But then God comes in a vision to Nathan and says, not so fast. I haven't ordered this. This is a bit premature. You just can't go off half-baked and sort of give God suggestions for how things are done. In fact, God says, I have not dwelt in a house from the day I brought you, the Israelites, up out of Egypt, verse 6. I have been moving from place to place. That is the mobile tabernacle. Verse 7. Wherever I have moved with all the Israelites, did I ever say to any of their rulers whom I commanded to shepherd my people Israel, why have you not built me a house of cedar? In other words, it sounds as if God does not want to be in a position where somehow the progress of the divine storyline depends on Our suggestions? Let let me back off. Remind yourself of the story of Abraham. How does that come about? Is Abraham having his devotions in Ur of the Chaldees one day when he says to God in prayer, God, I've been looking around at my culture and frankly it's going to hell in a handbasket. These are terrible times. More idolatry is multiplying. But I got a suggestion. I think you should start with a whole new humanity. I can be the sort of progenitor. From me, they will multiply to become as numerous as the sands of the earth. You can be my God. I'll be your guy. And you can send me anywhere you like, and I'll obey you. And, and you make a whole new group of people. Let's call them Israelites from my line. Is, is that the way it works? 
No, God is the sort of God who will not share his glory with another. And as a result, God chooses Abraham and he sends him to a place where Abraham doesn't go and eventually cuts a covenant with him and so on, so on, so on. Or take Moses. Moses thinks he's going to do it. As a young man, he thinks he's going to be the great rescuer of his, of his people and he ends up running away to the backside of a desert charged with murder. It's not until he's 80 that God taps him on the shoulder and says, Now, Moses. God will not share his glory with another. So that even if God himself has predicted there will be a time and a place where his name is, is stabilized in one city with a temple. That's what Deuteronomy has anticipated. Yet, if David comes along and says, <clears throat> I'd like to make a suggestion, the time's now, God. Then, then, then God isn't having any part of it. And, 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 and moreover, there's something even bigger going on. We read... Verse 11b, the Lord declares to you that the Lord himself will establish a house for you. David wants to build God a house. God says he's going to build David a house. But there's a pun, of course. The house that David wants to build for God is a temple. The house that God is going to build for David is a dynasty. It's the same word, but it's a pun. God's going to build a house for David, a dynasty. Verse 12, when your days are over and you rest with your ancestors, I will raise up your offspring to succeed you, your own flesh and blood, and I will establish his kingdom. Now you can understand why David was scared on this point, because after all, there had only been one king so far in Israel. That was Saul, and his son didn't become the king. His son was killed. Saul had been so wicked himself that the dynasty was destroyed before the dynasty was properly established. Now David is the king. Who guarantees that his son will be good and loyal and faithful? How about his son's son? How about his son's son's son? You can't guarantee such things. So will he be cut off and destroyed as Saul was cut off and destroyed? That's what David is worried about. But no, no, God says, I will raise up someone from you to succeed you. He is the one who will build a house for my name. That is, I've already got this planned. He will build a house for me, a temple for me, and I will establish the throne of his kingdom forever. I will be his father and he will be my son. That's the quotation that's used in Hebrews Hebrews 1. I will be his father and he will be my son. When he does wrong, I will punish him with a rod wielded by men, with floggings inflicted by human hands. But my love will never be taken away from him as I took it away from Saul, which is what David is afraid of, whom I remove from before you. Now, I don't know how many of you are here for the first time. And probably most of you who were here the last time don't remember what I said last time. Anyway, so it won't be too insulting if I repeat something I said last time. I want to say something about sonship to make sense of this passage. When we talk about sonship today, the thing that interests us the most is DNA. Hence all the CSI type programs. Do do, do, do you see? You've got to establish who the real father is. Paternity resolution is everything. And on this entire series of television programs have been built. But in the ancient world, sonship was bound up with performance. Oh, genetic descent was presupposed, but... Let's try this. I've tried this before. You guys now, just the guys, how many of you are doing vocationally 
what your fathers did at the same age. Let me see your hands. Now, you gals, how many of you are doing vocationally right now what your mothers were doing at the same age? I see a hand. Isn't that remarkable? What are there, 200 people here? One out of 200? 0.5%? If my mathematics holds. (laughs) But in the ancient world, it wasn't like that. If your father was a baker, you became a baker. Your father was a farmer, you became a farmer. And so your education, your course in life, your station in life, your job in life, and so on, it was all determined by your family. So Jesus is called a carpenter's son. And then eventually in Mark, he's actually called a carpenter. Because apparently his father has died and he's taken over the family business, you see, before he's entering his full-time ministry. You're identified by your vocation. And out of that then come a wide range of biblical euphemisms. Um, um, Son of Belial. Son of worthlessness. If somebody calls you a son of Belial, it doesn't mean that your father's worthless. It means that you must, you must belong to the worthless family since your life is so disgustingly worthless. And Jesus can turn to people in his own day in, in John chapter 8 and say, and say, you are of your father the devil, of the lusts of your father you will do. No, he doesn't suggest that Satan has somehow impregnated their mothers. It's, it's not that sort of literal crassness. It's, it's rather they're acting like the devil. The, the devil is a murderer and they're trying to kill Jesus. The devil's a liar. They're saying untruths about Jesus. Do you see? So they must belong to the devil family. Who are the real sons and daughters of Abraham? Well, those who have Abraham's faith, not Abraham's genes. I mean, you can have Abraham's genes and still not act like Abraham. Now, that's not the important thing. The really important thing is, do you have Abraham's faith? That's part of Paul's argument, isn't it? Who are the true sons of Abraham? You have to have Abraham's faith. So also this language was used when somebody became king. It was understood that God was the ultimate king. But once you become king, then you are standing in for God. You belong to the God family. It's, the, it's, it's God's right to rule. It's God's right to reign. And so son of God thus became part of the appellation, part of the title base that becomes yours once you become a king in Israel. The surrounding pagans had similar terminology. And it, it all, all depends on this, this, this son language, this understanding of what sonship is. So once the son of David, Solomon, becomes king, then we're told that God says, I am his father. He is my son. Do, do, do you see? He's become the king. He reflects God. And we're told, this is talking about Solomon now. It's not talking about Jesus. Because we're told in the very next verse, when he does wrong, I will punish him with a rod wielded by men, with floggings inflicted by human hands. That is, I won't take away the kingship the way I took it away from Saul. He will have temporary punishments, human punishments, but he will not finally be destroyed. Why? Because... Verse 16, your house and your kingdom will endure forever before me. Your throne will be established forever. Now, if that is literally to be fulfilled, there are only two ways that it could happen. One king is succeeded by another king, who was 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 succeeded by another king, world without end. Or ultimately, you get a king who himself lasts forever. Those are the only options. If this promise of an eternity enduring king is to be true. 
And in this passage, it doesn't specify which. But as the Old Testament unfolds from this seminal prophecy, this prophecy to David about 1000 BC, as this unfolds, then you start finding distinctive things about this Davidic line, the ultimate promise of this Davidic line. You come to the 8th century and King Isaiah and, and, and Prophet Isaiah now giving words that we quote every Christmas and we sing with Handel's Messiah from Isaiah 9. Yes, he shall reign on the throne of his father, David. Of the increase of his kingdom, there will be no end. But he will also be called the wonderful counselor, the mighty God, the everlasting father, the prince of peace. And so in the Old Testament, the expectation of who this Davidic king is gets ratcheted up and ratcheted up and ratcheted up and ratcheted up until you expect a Davidic king who is genuinely from David's line, but who is identified with God and who will bring in the ultimate kingdom. He will be God's son. Now, you're not thinking in Trinitarian terms now. There are some contexts where sonship is thinking in terms of Trinitarian terms. But, but, but that's not it. It's, 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 it's the kingship of David that establishes David's son as God's son. I will be his father. He will be my son. He reflects God and his authority and his rule and his reign. Do, do, do you see? Have I made sense of this passage? Now, more briefly, Psalm 2. Psalm 2. Why do the nations conspire and the people's plot in vain? The kings of the earth rise up and the rulers band together against the Lord and against his anointed one. Literally, against his Messiah, the anointed one, the king. Let us break their chains and throw off their shackles. Now, in the context of ancient Israel, that means that the surrounding territories that David and his heirs are ruling over are trying to rebel against Yahweh and against his Messiah, his anointed one, his king, the Davidic king. Well, it's one thing to rebel against a human Davidic king, but supposing that human Davidic king has God behind him. Then verse 4, the one enthroned in heaven laughs. The Lord scoffs at, how are you going to take on God Almighty? So when God backs up the Davidic king, then a Shalmaneser comes in with his troops and tries to take over Jerusalem and he loses 200,000 men. How do you take on God Almighty? He rebukes them in his anger and terrifies them in his wrath, saying, I have installed my king on Zion, my holy mountain. That is, as long as God has installed his king and is backing that king. You can't take on that king because you're taking on God. And then the king speaks. That's what God says, verse 6a. Then the king speaks. I will declare the Lord's decree. That is, the Lord's decree that has just been uttered in 6a. I have installed my king on Zion, my holy mountain. Now the king says, I'll proclaim this decree. He said to me, You are my son. Today I have become your father. In other words, once this human figure becomes king, then he's become God's son. In becoming the king, that's when he becomes God's son. Today I have become your father because now he has taken on the likeness of God that enables him to rule. That's what God does. He rules. He rules with equity, with justice. And the Davidic king is supposed to rule with equity and justice. That's why he's now been appointed the son of God. So son of God, in other words, can mean different things in different contexts in the Old Testament. After all, when the angels approach God in Job, 
Even the bad ones, they're called sons of God. That's one usage. Sometimes angels here, sometimes son of God rather here, is bound up with the Davidic monarchy. Sometimes son of God is bound up with Israel. As early as Exodus 4, God says, let my son go that he may worship me. And Pharaoh says no. So there son of God is all of Israel. Here, Son of God is the Davidic king. In Job, Son of God can refer to angels. You see, it's a term that can mean different things in different contexts. And a text without a context becomes a pretext for a proof text. You always have to look at the context to find out what Son of God means. But in this context, it's got to do with being a Davidic king. Agreed? Now then, back to Hebrews 1. and We'll put together a few pieces to make sense of it. And then we're done. So now the question becomes, if Jesus then is claiming to be the king of Israel, the king in David's line, and thus God's son in that sense, the question becomes, when does he become king? When does Jesus become king? He announces the kingdom of God. He tells parables in which he's clearly the king. When does he become king? And that question actually is remarkably difficult to answer. Because the Bible gives a whole set of nuanced responses to that. In one sense, he's born the king. The wise men have it right. Where is he who was born king of the Jews? He was born with his right and this heritage. He is one with God from before the foundation of the world. He's born a king. In another sense, of course, he enters into his kingship, into his reign with his public ministry where he's exercising God's authority to cast out demons and heal the sick and proclaim the good news and so on and so on. He enters into it in his public ministry, which, which is why at Jesus' baptism, do you see the voice from heaven says, this is my son. And again at the transfiguration, this is my son. He's not talking about Trinitarian theology here. This is the second person of the Godhead. Now there are some texts that really move in that direction, but that's not these texts. These texts are establishing... Jesus' Davidic reign, his Davidic right to rule. He's God's son. He's been raised up by God. He is made the king. And at the end, after Jesus has died and risen again, what does he say before he goes? All authority is given to me in heaven and on earth. You see, he's entered into his reign. You don't have to wait till the end of the age for Jesus to be king. He is the king. In one sense, he's born the king. In another sense, he enters into his kingship, into his reigning in David's line at the beginning of his ministry. And supremely, he enters into this universal authority because he has risen from the dead. He has conquered death in principle and he will keep hacking back at all of God's enemies until death itself is finally destroyed, according to 1 Corinthians 15. He's the king. And one day, his reign will be uncontested. He's the Davidic king. Now, all these Son of God languages are bound up with Jesus being the king of David's line, the Son of God, do you see? But when Jesus becomes king in that sense, bound up with his death and resurrection, that's also when he becomes priest. That's when he enters into his mediatorial ministry. It's not that he volunteered to God and said, Oh God, I've got an idea. You probably hadn't thought this one up yourself, but I'd like to propose that I become a new priest. No, 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 no. God raises Jesus 
from the dead. That's what makes him the perfect mediator. He bears our sins. He dies our death. And if Satan were to come along and say, God, you can't possibly be merciful to that bunch of ragamuffin rebels, then Jesus says, in effect, but I purchased them. I, I died for them. Five bleeding wounds he bears, received on Calvary. They pour, effectually prayer. They, they, they pour effectual prayers. They strongly plead for me. Forgive him, oh forgive, they cry, nor let that ransom sinner die. My father hears him pray, his own anointed son. And thus Jesus' sonship as the mediator is bound up with his priesthood as the mediator. That's why the New Testament writers can quote Psalm 2-7 and apply it to all of these things. On the one hand, you see, he enters into his kingship precisely in his resurrection. And thus by saying, today I have become your father. Today you are my son. It's a way of saying Jesus thus enters into the sonship of the Davidic line with all the fullness of the authority of the reign of God at Jesus' resurrection. But that's also when he enters into his priestly ministry, not by volunteering, but because God appoints him to this. And this is likewise what establishes him as superior to the angels. Look at Psalm, uh, at, at Hebrews 1.5 again. For to which of the angels did God ever say, You are my son, today I have become your father. Or again, I will be his father and he will be my son. You see, the text is not saying, God did not at any time ever call any angel son. That's just playing with the word son. It's not listening to the context. Because God does sometimes refer to angels in the Old Testament as sons of God. In Job 1, they're the sons of God. Do, 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 do you see? The sons of God present themselves, including Satan. In one sense, they're the sons of God. They reflect something of the divine realm, the sacral realm, the, the, the spiritual realm. But they're not sons of God in the Davidic sense. They don't have the right to rule. They don't have the right to reign. They don't have the, the, the kingly authority of God himself. That belongs only to those in David's line. And both of these texts come from Old Testament passages that talk about sonship as being in David's line. That's why Jesus is superior to the angels. Not because um, he's the second person of the Godhead, though that's true. It's not the point here. You're not talking in Trinitarian terms here. You're talking in terms of Davidic kingship here. What makes Jesus so superior to the angels is that he alone has God's right to rule in line with all the promises of the Davidic dynasty. Now, we don't have time to run through all the other verses from the Old Testament here. I said I would look at three, so I will look at one more to make the total three. Back to mathematics. This is, Psalm, this is from the Psalms again, and it springs out of Hebrews chapter 1, verses 8 and 9. About the Son, God says, your throne, O God, will last forever and ever. So now it appears that God is addressing the Son as God, right? But that is quoted from the Old Testament, namely Psalm 45. Take a look at that one as well. Psalm 45. Now, in most of our English Bibles, there's a little um, superscription at the top. 
that says, amongst other things, this is a wedding song. Do you see that? And it is a wedding song. It's a wedding song for the king. Let let me follow the flow of the argument so that you can see what's going on. The first verse is the poet simply talking about his own subjective feelings as he's stirred to write this noble theme. My heart is stirred by a noble theme as I recite my verses for the king, and so on. Then, verses 2 to 5, the king's majesty and stature as he's coming up to the wedding. The wedding bit shows up in a few moments. You are the most excellent of men. Your lips have been anointed with grace since God has blessed you forever. Gird your sword on your side, you mighty one. Clothe yourself with splendor and majesty. All addressed to the king, all the way down to verse 5. And then, verses 6 and following, the courtier who's writing this addresses the king and says, Your throne, O God, will last forever and ever. Isn't that astonishing that a courtier could say that? In fact, some people have said, oh no, surely this is one of those psalms that is changing who's saying what to whom. And at this point, maybe one of them is addressing God and saying this to God rather than to the king. No, 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 this is being addressed to the king. Look at the flow. Your throne, O God, will last forever and ever. A scepter of justice will be the scepter of your kingdom. You love righteousness and hate wickedness. Therefore, God, your God, has set you above your companions. If this is being addressed to God directly then you can't make sense of verse 7. The courtier is saying to the king, Your throne, O God, will last forever. You will reign with justice and righteousness. Therefore, God, not you, but God, your God, will bless you. This has to be written by the courtier to the king. And somehow, the king of Israel is actually being addressed by the courtier as God. And then a little farther on, verses 10 and following, the courtier now turns to the bride. Listen, daughter, pay careful attention. Forget your people in your father's house. That is, um, don't don't, um, um, so be tied to your father's house that you're not giving absolute loyalty to your husband. The king's enthralled with your beauty. Honor him. He is your Lord. The city of Tyre will come with a gift. People of earth will seek your, seek your favor. In other words, come now to the wedding and so be allied with him that this union is perfect. And then verses 13 and 14, the bridesmaids are described. All glorious is the princess within her chamber in embroidered garments. She is led to the king. Her virgin companions follow her and so on. Then the last two verses are addressed to the king again. Your sons, that is the sons of the king, that come about as a result of this wedding, they will take the place of your fathers. You will make them princes throughout the land. I will perpetuate your memory throughout all generations. Therefore, the nations will praise you forever and ever. Do you see, when you have a royal wedding, one of the things you're aiming to do is establish the dynasty. You want sons to replace the fathers. That's what's going on here. So this is being addressed to an ordinary Davidic king. You can't say to Jesus, your sons will replace you. This is not in the first instance talking about Jesus. It's talking about an ordinary Davidic king. Did you see? And this ordinary Davidic king is addressed by the psalmist, your throne, O God. It's it's, it's amazing language. And now the wedding takes place and children come along and the the sons replace the fathers. It's a wedding song with a happy result. Heirs for the throne. 
but addressed to the king. How dare an Old Testament writer address a human king and address him as God? Your throne, O God, will last forever and ever. Well, it can be done because, first of all, insofar as this Davidic king is exercising God's authority to reign, your throne, O God, addressed to the king. He's representing God in his authority over the people. That's why this verse, your throne, O God, is full of kingly language. Did you notice that? Your throne, O God, will last forever and ever. A scepter of justice will be the scepter of your kingdom. You love righteousness and hate wickedness. Did you see, ideally, the, the Davidic king was supposed to reflect God's righteousness and justice on every conceivable front. And so far as he was exercising that justice, he was exercising the justice of God. In fact, because of that, the, the Old Testament word for God, Elohim, is in a handful of places actually used for human judges. Because they're supposed to be exercising the justice of God. Now this is picked up and applied then to Jesus in the New Testament. Because God stands behind this scripture, although it's the courtier that's writing the psalm, God stands behind the scripture, so it's God that's writing the psalm in that sense. God stands behind the words of the courtier. This is scripture. And if God is saying, that, is saying it, then there's a sense in which God is addressing the Son as God. And thus in Psalm 1, that's exactly the, in, in, in Hebrews 1, that's exactly the argument that is made. God himself addresses the Son and says, Your throne, O God. Your throne, O God. Hebrews 1, 8, will last forever and after a scepter of justice. A scepter of justice will be the scepter of your kingdom. Now, in the context again, do you see what this is? This is using sun language to refer to the Davidic king who is exercising all of the authority and reign and justice of God. And that's what makes him greater than angels. Not Trinitarian status, that shows up elsewhere. But here, he's intrinsically better than angels because he exercises all of the authority of God to rule and to reign. That is the entire argument of chapter 1 of Hebrews. That's what makes Jesus better. Now then, I don't have time, as I've said, to go through the other quotations. Relax. But I want to draw some pastoral implications from all of this. First, I want you to see already what this reading of Psalm of, of Hebrews 1, I keep calling it Psalm 1, it's Hebrews 1, what this reading of Hebrews 1 says about the way the whole Bible is put together. The New Testament writers do not look at what they're doing and they're saying, well, in the past God gave us the Old Testament writings, now he's giving us some New Testament writings. There were the Old Testament scriptures, now we've got the New Testament scriptures. There's some truth to that, all right, but that's not the nature of the argument here. The nature of the argument here is, yes, in, God's, in, in the past, God disclosed himself in all kinds of ways, you know, the, the, the covenants and the, the structures and the miracles and the exodus and all of that, and supremely in the scriptures given in a variety of ways, that's all true. But in these last days, we've got the sun revelation. In other words, when you come to the end of the old covenant, you don't have more scripture. 
And that's all. When you come to the end of the Old Covenant Scriptures, what you have is Jesus. Now, there are scriptures surrounding Jesus. Don't misunderstand me. Those who bear witness to him, equally inspired by God, and call scripture. That's true. But the, the culmination of the Old Testament is not the New Testament. The culmination of the Old Testament is Jesus, about which the New Testament speaks. It really is important to see the sheer centrality of Christ in all of this. That's not diminishing the New Testament. What it is doing is emphasizing Christ. The ultimate projection of the importance of the word of God in the Old Testament, the word of the Lord came to the prophet Jeremiah saying, the word of the Lord came to Ezekiel saying, the word of the Lord came to, came to Isaiah saying, and ultimately the word became flesh and lived for a while among us. The ultimate movement is not toward more writings. The ultimate movement is toward Jesus, about which these more writings speak. I don't know how many of you are interested in theological education or pursuing more. Probably not many, but there are probably a few. Let me tell you one of the great dangers of incipient theologians, not least conservative ones, who want to go to good Bible colleges and seminaries. You can become so intoxicated by the actual study of text that you actually diminish in your devotion to Christ. Now, it shouldn't happen that way, but I've seen it happen again and again. People start talking about the importance of exposition, which is true, and the importance of the gospel, which is certainly true. I chair something called the Gospel Coalition. Um, it, it's certainly true. But you can talk and talk and talk about the gospel, the gospel, the gospel, the gospel, the gospel, the gospel, and never actually depict any sheer, untrammeled devotion to Christ. It all becomes confessional. It all becomes truth-bearing. But there's no devotion to Christ. There's no... There's no superfluity, some overflow of, of adoration that you get in the prologue here. Who is the radiance of the Father's glory? Who upholds all things by his powerful word? Do you, do, you, do you see? Now, you can do the exegesis to show what those texts mean, but at the end of the day, the point of that exegesis is not to say, I have been a good exegete, I have expounded faithfully. The point of the exercise is to exalt Christ. It's really important to see that all through the whole book. Though there are many, many theological arguments described, many uses of the Old Testament, yet nevertheless the point of the exercise is the sheer centrality of Christ. So on the one hand, the biblical theology, how the whole Bible fits together. The second, the centrality of Christ. But then the sheer centrality of Christ over against any competing religious or spiritual authority. Now, you might think in our day and generation, there aren't too many people going around frightened by angels or wanting angels on side or whatever. Oh, come on. Touched by an angel. We have television programs like that. More angels and more, more spooky-dooky kinds of programs where either people come back to life or they've been transmuted into angelic form or they're governing your life somehow and so on. And it's supposed to be all reassuring and sentimental and religious. And it's a lot of twaddle. <coughs> Because at the end of the day, it's all geared toward wanting us to have a little more confidence in our ability to control the future, or alternatively, confidence in some spiritual something out there, ill-defined, which is benevolent, and which will suddenly intervene in our lives to bring about happy results when we make a mess of things. And not to worry, it'll turn out all right. You'll be touched by an angel. Or 
believe it or not, in our scientific Western world, there's a return to the study of astrology and more interest in spiritism. And it's all a reflection of the same thing, the desire to get some control in life, to make sense of things, to be ordered, to govern our own happiness. And over against all of that, what the Bible says is, uh uh-uh, there's only one King Jesus. He runs the show. He's the promised Davidic king. There's no spiritual power. There's no spiritual entity. There's no force. There's nothing out there that is not subject to the authority of King Jesus. All authority is given to me. He's the king. He's the son of God in that sense. And to which of the angels themselves did God ever say, you are my son in that sense? They're not Davidic kings. They don't have the right to rule. In in fact, even in the book of the Old Testament where angels are most prominent, the book of Daniel, the angels are ordered about by God to do this and that or the other. Don't don't, don't you see? How can you possibly think that the angels are actually controlling things? It's God who controls things. And, And God controls things precisely through his king. That king is declared to be his king. He's declared to be the son of God on the basis of the cross and resurrection when he made purification for sins and sat down. Now you understand chapter one. But because of that, all of our confidence for the future must be bound up with confidence in Christ. All our fears about whether we're going to get married or not, how the economy is going to handle our jobs, our fears about whether we're accepted before others, our uncertainties about our social dynamics and all the rest, at the end of the day, it's all subject to King Jesus. You go to him. You bow to his authority. You seek his will and his way. Your desire is to please him because you will give an account to him. He's the king. And so he becomes the center of your devotion, the center of your confidence, the center of your joy, the center of your hope. Because to which of the angels, to which of the astrologers, to to, to, to which of the soothsayers, to, to, to which of the spirits, to which of the necromancers did God ever say, you are the one in control, you are my son? No, no. He said that to the Davidic king. And the supreme Davidic king is King Jesus. And all authority in heaven and on earth is his. Let us pray. We confess how easily we run towards manufacturing our own deities, towards finding confidence and hope elsewhere. Return us, we beg of you, Lord God, to King Jesus, the unique Son, the Son of David, the Son of God, in whose name we pray. Amen.